thanks so much, John. Really appreciate that. So this morning we're thinking about walking humbly with uh, God, asking the question, what does humility look like? Um, just by way of introduction, I, I thought we'd, um, uh, we'd add a little culture to our proceedings this morning because um, I'm not known for adding culture to the proceedings normally, but I thought this morning uh, we'd do that. Uh, so I've got a little clip for you this morning of Charles Dickens reading part of one of his classic works, David Copperfield. And this particular passage sets the scene uh, for the character of Uriah Heep from... Um, uh, uh, the, the story uh, a young man who talks all the language of humility but embodies anything but uh, and I just want to uh, use this this morning to help us think about what humility isn't so let's uh, have a listen just as Charles reads this to us shall we Uriah Heep is seated on a high stool in Wickfield's office thoughtfully cracking his knuckles as David comes in you're working late tonight, Uriah. Yes, Master Copperfield, I am. I am improving my legal knowledge, Master Copperfield. I'm going through Tid's practice. Oh, what a writer Mr. Tid is, Master Copperfield. I suppose you're quite the great lawyer. Oh, me, Master Copperfield? Oh, no. I'm a very humble person. I'm well aware that I am the humblest person going. Let the other person be where he may. My mother is likewise a very humble person. We live in a humble abode, Master Copperfield, but have much to be thankful for. My father's former calling was humble. He's a partaker of glory at present, Master Copperfield. But we have much to be thankful for. I wish you'd call me Uriah, if you please. It's like old times. <laughs> Uriah? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Master Copperfield. It's like the blowing of old breezes or the ringing of old bellses to hear you say Uriah. So thank you uh, for a moment of culture in our proceedings this morning. So, um, uh, for those of you less familiar with the novel, let me explain Uriah is a young man from a low-born background and he's been given this position uh, a paid position as a legal clerk in a gentleman's law firm. He's constantly referring to his own low state, and he's clearly deferential in all of his dealings with, with others. He puts himself down and puffs others up with his language, but in fact, all the time, he's planning deceit. He's swindling his benefactor's clients out of their money, and he ends up blackmailing himself into a position of partnership in the law firm, and Uriah Heep, of course, has become the embodiment of false humility, something that we talk about, false humility. A man whose words say one thing, but whose actions reveal a heart where there's anything other than humble. And we're going to go on and think about the importance of words and actions when we ask the question, how do we walk humbly with God? 
But as we do so, I want to pick another character out this morning. I want us to think about Moses in the Old Testament for a little bit. So Numbers 12 and verse 3 famously tells us, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. But you know who wrote Numbers 12 and verse 3, don't you? So Moses is credited with writing it himself. Now, some would argue that Moses never put pen to paper and therefore it was others who collected his thoughts and insights. Um, uh, And uh, it was they who added that particular thought in out of admiration for Moses' humility. But actually, I'd like to say to you this morning, I don't think it really matters. Because humility isn't about speaking badly of yourself, looking down on yourself, Um, or refusing to acknowledge your gifts and abilities or your strengths. It's not denigrating yourself or constantly suggesting that you are less than others or that everyone else is somehow better than you. Humility is actually the capacity to see yourself as you truly are before God, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And we'll explore that thought a little bit later, but... I just wanted to unpack a little bit more about Moses' character uh, uh, because I think we can learn from him what true humility is about Uh, and just remind you about that interaction he has with Yahweh at the burning bush in the desert. So we all know this story, yeah? So Moses goes over to the site of a bush that's on fire but it doesn't burn up and the Lord speaks to him. Sorry, bear with me just one second. Will that work? Oh, look at that. So... There we go. Um, Moses goes over to see this this burning bush uh, that doesn't burn up. And the Lord speaks to him out of the bush uh, and tells him to take off his sandals because the place that he's standing is holy ground. And Moses complies, which of course could be seen as the first lesson in humility. When God speaks, we reverently listen and comply with whatever it is he's saying. But then follows a dialogue between Moses and the Lord where Moses, as a humble man, explains why he can't do the thing that God's calling him to do. So first of all, Moses comes out with, who am I to speak to Pharaoh? I'm just a shepherd. He's a great king, but God answers and reassures him that he'll be with Moses, he'll help him do it. And then secondly, Moses comes back with, why the Israelites... Ask me who sent me. And God answers, this is my name. Tell them I am the one who was with their fathers. They'll understand that. But then Moses comes back with, but what if they don't believe me? And God gives him those two great signs with which he can prove that God is with him. He's got a staff that turns into a snake and back again. And a hand he can put inside his cloak and take it out leprous and then put it back in again and take it out clean, put it back in and take it out. And it's like a, why have I got an image of Napoleon Bonaparte in my head? I don't know. Um, And then, of course, there's the extra sign. If he should need it, he can also take some water from the Nile, tip it on the ground, and it will become blood. God's going, I've got this. I, I can prove them if they don't believe you. So far, everything's going okay. Moses has got questions and God clarifies with answers. And that's an important point because God doesn't mind us questioning him with humility. And it would seem that the Almighty is perfectly happy to let Moses in on his plan. But there's a key point coming up in this encounter and it seems to me that Moses 
reaches the point where he realises that actually, having asked God how this is going to happen, he's going to actually have to do the thing that the Lord is asking him to do. He's actually going to have to stand before Pharaoh and deliver God's message. And as a wanted man in Egypt, he's going to have to stand up against the ultimate war power of the time and tell it what to do with an honest appraisal of his own shortcomings. He realises he's not very good at that. And he says to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you spoke to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And there's nothing wrong at all with what Moses says here. He knows he's not the best speaker. He doesn't command a room. He's not clever with his words. He's not got the political wit for a king's throne room. And he knows it. But the Lord responds with an entirely rhetorical question and a statement. And the Lord said to him, Who is it that gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. The Lord's answering Moses' final objection. He doesn't flatter him or encourage him. He doesn't big him up or tell him, come on, you got this. He just points out that if God's the one who made Moses... If he's the one who heals and gives sight to the blind, he's more than capable of giving Moses whatever he needs to equip him to do the job that he's called to. And up to this point, I think Moses has shown high level of humility. He humbled himself before his maker. He acknowledges God's holiness. He's shown an honest appraisal of his own abilities. He's aware of his own shortcomings, but then I think he blows it. He comes back at God with, I'm sorry, Lord, please just send someone else. Which equals, sorry, Lord, this is just too scary. I can't do this. Even though you're with me, I don't want to face this. I don't care that you can help. I'm just not capable. And we read this fantastic sentence in the scriptures. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. God got thoroughly ticked off. It's an important lesson for us. Humility doesn't say no to God. However scary a situation might be, however inadequate we might feel to the task, whatever weakness we may see in ourselves, we need to trust that when God asks us to do something, he provides the resources. When he says that we're capable, able, equipped, he's not bigging us up. He's speaking the truth. When God says, I've called you by name and you belong to me, he's not asking us to enter a debate as to whether we're worthy of that calling or whether we deserve it or whether we're good enough. He's simply stating the absolute truth. When he tells us, you, each one of you, are fearfully and wonderfully made, he's not asking us to compare ourselves with others and say that, well, I'm not as clever as them. I'm not as well made as they are. I'm not as attractive or as gifted as them. He's telling us that we are just as he intended. And a refusal to believe the truth that God speaks over you is not humility. An excuse that says, I can't do what you're asking because, Lord, is not humility. Arguing with the positives that God speaks over us is not 
humility. In fact, it borders on arrogance, doesn't it? God says something and we go, nah, you're wrong. You got that wrong. It's effectively saying, God, I know better than you. I know I'm not capable of this thing. As if we could ever know ourselves as well as God the Father knows us. So when God tells you you're beautiful, don't contradict him. He's simply speaking the truth. I want us to think for a minute about the culture that we live in and the culture of comparison and where some of this stuff comes from. It's a problem of having some, uh, very little to worry about, isn't it? Now, the people in Ukraine, they've got a lot to worry about at the moment. There's all kinds of things going on, all kinds of things that are concerned. Uh, as David prayed before, we're protected by a sea around us. It's very hard to drive a tank across the channel. Um, but some of the problem is when, when you're safe, when you're protected, when you have everything that you need, when you've grown up in that kind of environment and you have little to worry about, you start to worry about the things that don't really matter. Have you noticed that? You know, the, the first world problems that we talk about. So we've got clothes and food and shelter and an abundance, so instead of worrying about our daily bread, we worry about the fact that we can't afford to go out for dinner as much as other people do. You know, instead of worrying about how far we've got to walk to go and get water, we worry about what kind of transport that we've got to get to the shops and back in. And instead of getting on and using the gifts and abilities that we've got, that we've been given, and finding a place where they fit in God's community, we worry about not having the same upfront gifts that somebody else has got. Or thinking that, you know, all I've got is this, it's not really on display and therefore it, it doesn't matter. But 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us that our significance isn't found in being as good or as gifted or as visible or as upfront or as appreciated as anybody else. Our significance found in having the humility we accept that God has given us whatever he wants us to have. And it's our responsibility to take that and to use that to the best of our ability in the situation we find ourselves. Romans 12.3 tells us this. For the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Which is, of course, about not having an inflated opinion of ourselves and our abilities. About remaining humble, even when, perhaps especially when, we're particularly gifted in an area. But the verse also applies to us from the opposite perspective, that we shouldn't allow ourselves to exclude or excuse ourselves from God's will, God's plans, God's purposes, because we feel less ag- adequate. Sober judgment's actually a key phrase here. What am I like? Who have you made me, Lord? What are my gifts? What are my abilities? Where can I serve? How do I fit? These are the things we need to be asking ourselves. Always remembering that, I don't like this verse much. From those who've been entrusted with much, much will be required. So if you think somebody else is more gifted than you are, uh, be grateful for that. Yeah? They're going to be judged according to the level of gifting that's going to be given to them. 
We all know the parable of the talents. Yeah? The man who's given one talent isn't criticised for not producing five or ten like his co-workers did. He's criticised for failing to do what he could with the bit that God had given him. Jesus' teaching that comparison misses the point. We're simply called to humbly accept what it is that God has given us and honour the Father with the thing that is placed in our hands. Let's just flick on a little bit. I want to go back to the passage that we heard before and think about Jesus. Earlier in the service, we're thinking about the humility that Jesus portrays and the passage that exhorts us to demonstrate that, that kind of humble attitude that Jesus did when he was carrying out the Father's will. Let's just think then. So our attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who... Being in very nature God, what's that mean? He's fully God. Who being fully God, who being God, being equal, part of the God in himself, he didn't consider that level of hugeness something to be grasped, grabbed hold of, or used to his own advantage when he needed it. He humbled himself and became obedient. He allowed the Father's will to take the lead even though it would cost him everything. Even though he could have chosen differently, and do you realise Jesus had the right to choose differently? What was the devil's ploy in the desert with Jesus all the way through? Make a different decision. Choose a different way. Worship me. Don't listen to Father. Do this instead. But Jesus chose to serve the greater purpose. He lived in a world, and we live in a world, don't we, that fights for its rights. It demands for its voice to be heard. It insists that it is recognised and respected as an equal. But Jesus teaches us that the more we have a right to something, the more willing we need to be to lay down that right for the needs of others and submit to the will of the Father. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is wrestling with pain, the ultimate sacrifice. He knows what's coming and he asks the Father if there's any other way to work out the plan of salvation. Could we please just go with plan B, Dad? Plan A is utterly outrageous. It asks the author of life to die. It asks the commander of heaven's armies to surrender to a mob. And it calls the king of all kings to allow himself to be humiliated by one's who only have any power and authority because he allowed it in the first place. And he asked the judge of all the earth to submit to a courtroom sham that he knows will end in the most unjust decision ever made. And yet, even in his agony, knowing the unfairness of it all, Jesus still prays in humility, yet not my will be done, but yours. How do you get to that point? How do you get to that place if we're supposed to have that same attitude as Jesus? How do we get to the place of, even in the face of the worst unfairness, making the decision that God's asking us to do? How could Jesus submit to the Father's plan when everything in him wanted an out? I think it's because he trusted the one who asked this of him. He knew Father's indestructible love for him. And he could see the outcome of following the Father's plan, not just the cost. 
who for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12 tells us, he endured the cross. The only one who never deserved to die dies in my place and your place and the author of life lays down his life for me and for you. You see, humility needs to serve the the needs of others before it serves its own. In humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests and others. Verses 3 and 4 of this passage tells us. It's a tough act to follow. Following Jesus is a tough act. But it is, of course, what it means to be his disciples. Adopt the same attitude, Scripture tells us. Adhere to the same values. It's a high and a lofty call. It's a noble call, and it's a flipping tough call. Guys, ever felt like that? Yeah? Jesus knew it when he asked it, and when he said to us, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. If you're following Jesus, you're heading for a cross. You're following the way of sacrifice. Many of Jesus' followers found the things he asked of them too difficult to accept. This is hard teaching, they said. Who can accept it? But I want to leave you this morning, and I am going to close quickly now, with a thought that I think is key in helping us adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And it comes from the account of the final meal that Jesus had before them with his death. Now most of you know this passage really well. It's the part where Jesus utterly outrages Peter by taking on himself the role of the lowest of slaves and with a towel wrapped round his waist and a bowl in his hands he proceeds to wash the muck and the filth from his disciples' feet. So let's just take a second just to listen to these words from John's Gospel again. John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin and began washing his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus tells them that he set an example to follow of how they should humbly serve one another's needs. But I think the key to finding humility, to follow through on this teaching, is not about us getting dogged determination to make ourselves the last and the least. It's not a decision to be made through gritted teeth. The key to living a life of humility is found in verse 3, where it says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God. The key to being free to follow through, to serve in humility, both God and our brothers and sisters, is knowing that security comes from understanding who you are in God and who the Lord has made you to be. See that pride and vying for position and defending your rights and standing up for yourself and wanting a different role than the one that you've got and needing to be seen and heard usually comes from a place of insecurity. It usually comes from a place of, hey guys, I need you to see me because I feel that you don't and I feel worthless because you don't see me. But when we're secure in God, when we know, really know, 
that we're a child of the king. When we realise that our place in the world has nothing to do with our standing in heaven. And when we truly grasp that when we feel insignificant in this life, our creator knows our name and he holds us for all eternity. We don't need the reassurance of men as to our value. We're free to pursue our higher purpose and calling and to follow just simply the plan that God has for us individually. We're free to be the people that he made us to be with the gifts that he chose to give us in the place that he's called us. We're free to find out who we are in him and where we fit in his family. And when we know who we are in him, who cares what anybody else thinks about us? Let's pray, shall we?